0: Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of the Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're speaking with Michael Kowalski. He is one of the preeminent researchers on the Shroud of Turin and the editor of the BSTS, also known as the British Society for the Turin Shroud, uh, and he's editor of the newsletter. We'll be talking about his upcoming book and some of the evidences for the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin. And for more information on Michael, you can visit bstsnewsletter.com, bstsnewsletter.com. So uh, with that, welcome, Michael. Hello, thank you, Guy. And uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, well, let me tell you a little bit more about uh, Michael's background. He lives in Halifax, Yorkshire, which is a town in the north of England. He graduated from physics at the University of Manchester in 1976, following which he had a short three-year career working in the textile industry with uh, Courtauld's PLC. He subsequently changed careers, joining a multinational computer company where he worked for 37 years specializing in the development and implementation of banking systems used by many of the UK's major financial institutions. Since taking early retirement in 2016, he's devoted much of his time to the study of the Holy Shroud of Turin. He's a member of the Shroud Sciences Group, which is a closed forum used by Shroud researchers from around the world to encourage communication and collaboration on matters relating to the Shroud. He has written a book titled The Shroud of Christ Evidence of a 2000 Year Antiquity. And that will be published very shortly. And I'm sure he's going to tell us a little bit more about that. But most importantly, he has also recently succeeded David Rolfe as the editor of the BSTS newsletter, having taken on that role uh, back in June of last year. Michael, it's so good to have you. And uh, again, welcome and uh, good to have you. Let's talk a little bit about what your backstory is. So what got you so excited about the Shroud of Turin?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's interesting, really. I was trying to think when I first heard about the Shroud and I really can't remember when I, when I first uh, came across it. But What I do remember very vividly is the first time it had a real impact on me. And that was probably sometime in the late 70s when I came across a magazine which was featured an article about the, uh, the shroud, and it included some photographs, a photograph of the shroud and a photograph of uh, the negative image of the, fo- of the face, and also one of the full body. And I can remember being absolutely captivated by those photos. The fact that what seemed to be a rather faint and really quite unremarkable image was completely transformed into an incredibly realistic uh, image of the face and body of a man when the light and shade were reversed in the photographic negatives. And I can remember staring at the photograph of the face and just having the realisation that I was looking at the face of Jesus. And obviously, that was really quite moving and incredibly profound. And uh, I I think after that, of course, the next thing I really remember was the excitement of the the carbon dating in 1988. And I I assumed, like I'm sure many people did, that uh, that test was going to confirm that the cloth was from the first century. It was 2,000 years old. And we'd all be reassured that the shroud was authentic. And so, like so many people, I was really quite shocked when the announcement came out that uh, it dated from the 14th century and it was medieval fake. And that was something that I really couldn't come to terms with because I couldn't reconcile this view that it was a med- medieval fake with the, the image that I had seen. I couldn't see how a, a forger could have created such an image, such a real realistic image of the face and body of a man so that was something that well the test was something I really just put to one side I just decided to accept that uh, something must have gone wrong with the test it didn't stop me believing in the authenticity of the shroud at all but actually it wasn't until probably about 20 years 20 years ago when a very good friend of mine introduced me to a lot of the scientific evidence that I didn't know anything about at the time so, for instance, the uh, the pollen that's been found on the shroud that comes from plants that are known to be native, not to Europe, but to places such as Judea or parts of Turkey. And then, of course, the dust that's been found in deposits, deposits of dust on the shroud in places that correspond with the feet, the knees, and also the nose and of course, that is uh, consistent with the tradition that Jesus fell while carrying the cross. And when analysing the dust, scientists have found that there are particles of uh, of limestone, which are of a type called travertine aragonite, which is a type of limestone found in Jerusalem. And also the chemical fingerprint of that limestone is uh, is a match for the for the limestone in Jerusalem as well. So all these all this evidence started to uh i was delighted to find that science uh, was actually beginning to confirm that uh, the shroud was authentic but despite all this i I did take a a real interest in the shroud but i had uh, at the time a fairly busy career uh, well a very busy career actually and my family were also uh, keeping me quite occupied so (laughs) i uh, didn't really spend a great deal of time pursuing my interest in the shroud but what changed for me actually was not long before i retired i came across a blog which talked about the carbon dating and of course this was a big piece of evidence that had dropped me back in 1988 so when i read this blog and found out that there were well the blog was very critical of the carbon dating test and went into a lot of details about some of the failures in the test for instance the fact that they they failed to adhere to the agreed protocols Uh, which they had at the outset. So they didn't take samples from multiple areas. They only took it from a single corner, which had been handled through the centuries. And the fact that they had planned to have blind testing, which is a standard scientific protocol for these types of tests. And yet the laboratory staff were able to distinguish the, the shroud sample from the control samples. So that started me... Getting really very interested in the carbon dating in particular, and uh, at that point I started looking very actively online for any kind of information I could uh, I could get about the carbon dating, and of course there are lots of very good sources of information. And one that I was particularly uh, that I found particularly helpful was a series of articles that was written by uh, Joe Marino. Called the politics of the radiocarbon dating mm. of the Turin Shroud, and that was a three-part uh, series of articles. That and it was a forerunner to his book. In fact, this book here, uh, the Sh- the Shroud of Turin, yeah, uh, the, the, uh, a stunning expose. Which, yep. oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, it, to be honest, anybody who wants to know anything about the uh, Carbon Dating of the Shroud, needs to look no further than that book. It's uh, it's a fabulous uh, uh, document, and I, and I have to say I found that incredibly helpful in helping me to understand what happened at every single stage of the process, mm. of the test process, going right back to when they first started considering uh, the possibility of carbon dating the Shroud. Yes, yeah, no, so no, let me no, sorry. Let
0: me let me interrupt you right there a second. Yeah. Um yeah, absolutely. And uh yeah, definitely uh understand, you know, that background and uh and because the same thing for me, you know, with 1978 and stirp and then you know the excitement around that and then the big letdown on the uh when the results of the uh carbon dating came out. Now you have over your shoulder though that negative in- image that you uh, spoke about. Yeah. And, you are so right that that is such an impressionable, imp- uh, an impression giving image that uh, that it, it's really hard to believe that you know that that was created by a, a medieval artist. Yeah, yeah,
1: it, it it really is. I mean, it's. Uh, I think whenever whenever doubts have arisen over the years, I've just remembered how it felt when I looked at that image, and uh, uh, and the doubts disappear <laughs> for me. Yeah. The- yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. So, uh, tell us uh, before we get into a little more detail. Uh, tell us about the uh, the BSTS and uh, what's the goal and objectives and what you're trying to do there.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, it's a it's a non profit organization which is completely non denominational, and we've got members from all over the world. So, although it's the British Society for the Churing Shroud, it really does have an international membership. Um. As an organization, we've got uh, a a management team, which is staffed with uh, various different people who are all volunteers. And indeed, you've already interviewed uh, a couple of that team, Brenda Benton and Pam Mm -hmm. Moon. So uh, you you know some of those very well already, Guy. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, absolutely. And David Rolfe as well. David as well, yeah. Um, Of course. Um, But the organization was, uh, was founded in 1976 at a time of course when there was a lot of scientific interest in the shroud and a time when the church was a lot more open than it is today to allowing scientists to examine the shroud and uh one of the aims of the uh of the organization was to support and promote scientific testing and it, it's actually interesting that about uh, it's only a couple of years ago that I actually realized that there was quite a connection between the BSTS and the Sturt Test that happened two years later, because uh, David Rolfe, who you've, uh, you've interviewed, David, of course, in, uh, in the mid-70s, he produced his, his famous uh, award-winning film, The Silent Witness, about the shroud, which was an international success. Um, now, some of the profits from that film... Uh, went to the Holy Shroud Guild in New York, which in turn was an organization which provided a lot of the funding that uh, uh, allowed the STERP team to go into mm-hmm. Rome and uh, to Turin and to perform their tests. So, indirectly, the BSTS through that channel has effectively ended up uh, partially funding the STERP team. Wow. So- that I didn't know. That's fantastic. That's uh, <laughs> wow, what a history. <laughs> but uh, another objective of the BSTS when it was founded as well was to um, to share out reliable information about the Shroud. And, and so ever since uh, 1982, it's been publishing a regular newsletter. Uh, in the early days, Ian Wilson, he was the first editor, and in fact, he was the editor for many, many years. And we've published the newsletter on a regular basis ever since, in fact. Mm. We've we've now up to the ninety sixth edition. We publish two of these a year, uh, one in summer and one just before Christmas. And uh, we've got, as I say, uh, we've got members from all over the world. The digital membership is very inexpensive at ten pound, ten pound a year, and that allows people access to copies of the newsletter plus. A historical archive that goes all the way back to 1982, and uh, if people like me prefer to have a hard copy in the hands, then for a, an extra charge to cover the uh, uh, to cover the postage and the print costs, we'll send out these newsletters to your door. So it's uh, it's it's. I, I think the newsletter is quite a good document, and we've had uh, some excellent uh, contributors, including. In the last issue, people like uh, Russ Brailt, says about uh, people you've already interviewed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. And, uh, well, both of them, uh, I haven't interviewed uh, Caesar, but he's definitely on my on my list. Yes. Uh, I just got done reading one of his books on the sidarium, uh, yeah. which is the face cloth that kind of is a, an accompanying cloth that is believed to have been found in the tomb as well. And, uh, and it also has uh, trouble with the carbon dating. Uh, as yeah. you probably know, it was dated to around the 700s, whereas the Shroud has been carbon dated to the you know, to the, um, you know, the 1260 to 1390 exclamation point. And uh, so <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, absolutely. So uh, well, tell us about uh, then some of the dating evidence that indicates that the Shroud is actually much older than the uh, carbon-14 test, and uh, and let's go from there.
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's really interesting that, uh, that obviously, I think if you talk to most people about dating archaeological objects, um, the very first method that most people would be aware of, in fact, probably the only method that people would be aware of, would be carbon dating. but of course, that's only been available ever since the middle of the last century. And, and it can only be used on objects that are made of organic material that come from plants or animals. So archeologists have for years had to use lots of other methods to establish the age of an object. And uh, for, for example, if, if you dig deep in the ground, and suddenly you come across let's say an earthenware jar containing a lot of first century roman coins then it's a reasonable deduction that the jar is probably at least as old as the first century and anything that would be found with that jar is probably that old as well and those kind of methods are methods that archaeologists have have used to uh, over the years, to establish the age of artifacts that they find on on different sites, and it's, it's it's interesting that you can we can use coins to also help us identify the age of the shroud, because uh, particularly in the Byzantine Byzantine era, uh, a lot of the emperors would print an image of the face of Christ. On one face of the coin. And many of those images have got features which have an extraordinary resemblance to features that are seen on the shroud. Now, I know you've interviewed Justin Robinson already, Guy.
0: Yes, thanks to, you know, to uh, Sue. uh, um, Now, your name is escaping me, but yes, thanks to, uh, you know, your group there, I was able to uh, interview him. Yeah
1: yeah well justin's a bsts member as well and uh yes justin's got uh, two bronze follis coins that were uh, minted by a byzantine emperor and uh, these follis coins have got features some features which really are quite uh, incredibly similar to equivalent features seen on the shroud face and one of the things which i find really particularly compelling about the um uh, about the coin images is that these were highly skilled engravers. In fact, um, I've got here a book that was written by Giulio Fanti, uh, which was just specifically about Byzantine coins. And Justin's, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Giulio's book focuses on the gold solidus coins that were minted by uh, Byzantine emperors. And these use the best engravers and yet even though many of them had images of the face of christ it's extraordinary that these uh, representations of christ had faces that were not symmetrical and they had irregular features unlike the faces of the emperors that often appeared on the opposite face where the faces were perfectly symmetrical and the faces were without blemish. So you might wonder why these engravers would have chosen to have represented the face of Christ with imperfections. And I think the only plausible explanation for this is that they were instructed to copy an image which was believed to be a true likeness of the face of Jesus, and that image being the, the image on the shroud of Turin, which at that time would have been the Mandelian or the image. Yeah, of the- you know,
0: and, and uh, exactly, and actually, what's what's even more interesting, or just as interesting, is that the image that you have over your shoulder is the is the negative, the black and white. And the positive or the the image that's on the shroud is a lot more challenging to actually read what's in there. And they were able to do such an exquisite job at replicating that image.
1: Yes, it certainly was. Um, I mean, in Julio's book, he he focuses uh, quite a lot of attention on one particular coin, which was a gold solidus that was minted in the reign of Justinian II in the period uh, 692 to 695 AD. And this really does have a remarkable resemblance to the shroud image, the shroud face. uh, Giulio points out 12 different features that are quite irregular, but which are common to both the shroud and the coin. So for instance, there is a gap between the bottom of the lower lip and the top of the beard. And the beard is parted in two. It's longer on the one side than the other. The hair's wavy, but it's also longer on the left side than the right side. So there are all sorts of features, which are quite irregular, but which are common to both the coin and the the shroud. And one of the things that Giulio did was he decided to look at what the probability would be that all these 10 features could have been by chance copied <laughs> or not copied, but by chance created, which yeah. were exactly the same as the shroud. And he assigned individual probabilities to these, uh, these features. So, for instance, the fact that there is a gap between the, the beard and the lip. He said, let's, let's say that's got a one in four probability, whereas a much more unusual feature, such as a parted beard, which is longer on the left side than the right, and the same shape as a shroud beard, and the same shroud as a shroud beard, same size as a shroud beard, let's give that a probability of one in 300. And then he added up all these probabilities, performed a calculation, and it came up with a figure of there is a one in 10 billion, billion chance mm. that an engraver would by chance have replicated these features without having seen them on the shroud, without having copied them. Now that's a, a difficult number to get your head around a one in 10 billion, billion, but I, I thought I'd try and work this out in a different way or try and rationalize this in a different way so if you if you look at the number of people there are on the planet there's seven and a half billion people it's estimated now and let's imagine that everyone on the planet was a skilled artist who was capable of drawing the face of a bearded man in five minutes (laughs) and let's imagine they carried on doing that for an hour then there would be at the end of an hour there'd be 90 billion portraits of the face of a man and if they carried on doing it, doing that for 25,000 years <laughs> <laughs> so there were every five minutes everyone was churning out an image of the face of a man and they carried on doing that for 25,000 years then in that time there would only be according to Julio's calculation no more than two images that mm-hmm. would be the same as the image that appears on the gold solidus with, the sa- with these 12 features all matching the equivalent features seen on the shroud. I mean, that is really, um, it, it just illustrates just how extraordinary it is that there could be such a close match between the mm. coin and the shroud without the, the engraver having seen it. It's, it's basically impossible. Well,
0: either and uh, exactly, and uh, although uh, they may have seen the shroud directly, or or they may have seen another picture of the shroud, because there could have been another artist that had, uh, you know, that had made an image of the of the shroud, and he happened to see that. uh, Maybe not directly the shroud. Personally, I I think somehow he uh, that artist or those artists had to have had almost most likely direct. Access to the shroud to be able to capture all of those little nuances. Uh, otherwise, you know, you'd have you'd have little misinterpretations, and uh, and 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 most likely, then those probabilities would would go down. So, uh, yeah. you know, I'm almost I, I you know I think you're absolutely right, or Julio is absolutely right in terms of the probability being as low as it is that that shroud was, you know, not drawn from random but was drawn based on some uh, oh. primary image. I'm
1: sure. I'm sure. And the, I mean, some people might argue that, uh, you know, Julio being a little bit mean in his assessment of the likelihood of some of these uh, uh, features being, co- in, being common to both the shroud and the coin. But if you redo the calculation, if you decide that, okay, let's just give it a one in five probability, not one in 300, but a one in five probability that the beard is parted in the middle, longer on one side than the other. Of the same shape as a shroud beard. And let's do that with every single one of these 12 features. You still end up with an enormous number of one in a quarter of a billion, a chance mm-hmm. that uh, these features could be replicated by chance. And that itself is, is less than the chances of winning the European... Euromillions lottery (laughs) the jackpot for that has got better odds than the chances of being able to uh, replicate the shroud image by chance if if the odds were just one in five for every single feature so it's it's um for me this is uh something which i find really quite compelling evidence that the shroud existed when that Mm. coin was minted yeah
0: and that coin what when was the uh, minting date of those coins
1: and that was in the period 12 uh, 692 AD to 695 yeah. AD and that kind of evidence um, I know people often say that there is no historical there are no historical records of the shroud prior to uh, the, the 14th century but actually when you look at it if i took a photograph back in 1976 of me standing next to a famous person (laughs) then that would be treated as a a historical record that I had met him Mm. so for me the images that are seen on the coin which are so closely similar to the and, and clear copies of the shroud image, for me that's as good as a historical record from a uh, a noted uh, figure in history writing about the shroud.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and to your point, you standing next to somebody famous is the emperor standing next to on the flip side of uh, the yeah. face of Jesus. And yeah. the other thing, too, is why would, the, why would an emperor, who's got more money than anybody else on the planet, why would he say, draw me a random image of Jesus? Oh, yeah. Yes. so there has to be something there has to be some source that he used and and at that time then he said I want you to find the source or there is the source go there and and make a copy of it and that's what I want you to engrave
1: yeah and of course if uh, if he did just wanted to draw a random image of Jesus would he have really accepted one with hair longer one side than the mm. other a swelling on one cheek? <laughs> I'm sure you wanted to see him as uh, representing the most perfect embodiment of the physical human form. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, so that says that um, where the skeptics kind of think that the shroud uh, was uh, the carbon dating 1260 to 1390. So now we have whatever it is, one in in 250 million or one in whatever it was, 7 billion billion chance that the coin represented that somebody saw that shroud in the in the 690, 692 to 694, whatever those dates were. Yeah,
1: ex- exactly. And and there are other artifacts as well that you can really uh, go through a similar exercise with the Prey Codex. Of course, mm-hmm. that's just a 12th century uh, uh, artifact. But nonetheless, the illustrations in the Prey Codex are similarly compelling in that they it's very difficult to explain how those images, why those images would have been created in the way they were if it wasn't done by an artist who had seen the shroud. And uh, there's a vase that's in the Louvre called the Amessa Holmes vase, which again has a facial image of Jesus, which matches the, sh- the shroud and so on. There are many of these types of artifacts. Mm-hmm. Of course, in the, in the years since the carbon dating test, Uh, various scientists have performed uh, measurements using quite innovative dating techniques, uh, using just tiny, tiny fragments of shroud material. So we've got Ray Rogers, who did a chemical dating test, which determined that the shroud must be uh, at least uh, 1300 years old. And Giulio Fanti and other Italian scientists uh, perform various spectroscopic and mechanical dating tests using individual uh, shroud fibres in some cases. And again, they're consistently finding with their tests that the material dates from around about the first century. Usually there are fairly high uh, errors associated with these measurements, because unlike carbon dating, these haven't been used for 70 odd years, and so they haven't been refined over a long period of time. So there is a much larger margin of error with those measurements. But nonetheless, they're all giving results which are much older than the radiocarbon dating test, but they are all consistent with the possibility that the shroud is authentic and dates from the first century. Yeah,
0: exactly. And, uh, you know, all of those tests, uh, you know, it, it it's interesting and I don't know how many there are. There's, I don't know, maybe 10, 15, maybe even more, really very scientist, scientific and rigorous tests that have either a, you know, a, a wide or a narrow uh, range of error. And yet then there's this one, the carbon 14, which says 1260 to 1390 exclamation point. Yeah. And, um, and so what do you think they did wrong? What, uh, what were some of the, the, the things that uh, you mentioned a couple already, but what else do you, do you think that they actually did wrong?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting. They, they, of course, I'm sure many of your guests have already uh, spoken about some of the issues that arose in the carbon dating guy. And what I, one of the things that I find particularly disappointing is that uh, when they set out, to do this test, initially they were making the right choices, I believe. So, for instance, they started out involving the scientists from the STERP team. They had an archaeologist, William Meacham, who'd got a lot of field experience where he'd used radiocarbon dating as part of his archaeological fieldwork. So, he was somebody who had practical experience of using carbon dating. And during the initial planning meet, these people were providing advice and contributing to the plans of how to take the test forward. But unfortunately, gradually as the planning process continued and as it got nearer to the time when they started to conduct the carbon dating test, these people were gradually, for some reason, eliminated from the process. And the advice that they were given, for instance, to take Multiple samples to take at least three samples from different areas of the shroud. Because if you take it from just one area, then really the the test has very little scientific credibility. This is the advice that archaeologists were giving them. But by the time that they came to conduct the, the, the test, the only scientists who were still involved in the process were the radiocarbon scientists. And so a lot of the advice that the team and uh, William Meacham was giving was basically abandoned. Now, radiocarbon scientists, I don't want to by any means um, put them down at all because I, they've got an incredible expertise, but they're not archeologists. They're not experts in ancient objects. And certainly the uh, scientists who were involved in the C-14 test of the shroud, that certainly, they, they didn't really know a great deal about the shroud. What they were very good at is, if you gave them a sample of material, they were very good at working out exactly how much radiocarbon there was in that material, what the ratio of radiocarbon was, and then from that, they were able to determine what the age of the particular piece of material was. But usually what happened is they would give their results to, back to uh, an archeologist or an expert who had accumulated all sorts of other evidence as well. And so this was one piece of evidence to be considered in the context of a much wider range of scientific data. And from all that, they would be able to work out exactly what the provenance was of this particular piece that they were interested in. Now. There's an analogy that I'd like to make here, because if I'm ill, you know, let's say I've got a a pain in my abdomen. Then I'll go to a doctor and I would expect the doctor to talk to me about my symptoms, to examine me. And then what he might do is he might send me off for a scan or send me to an x-ray department to have an x-ray. And he might take a sample of my blood and send it off to a a blood laboratory. And then when he gets back all these results, then he's got the information he needs to make an overall assessment of what my illness is and to perform a diagnosis and hopefully give me a course of treatment that will cure me. What I wouldn't expect to happen is to suddenly find that the, the technicians in the blood lab had decided that they were in charge and that none of the other tests that were being done and none of the doctor's views mattered at all, that their uh, blood analysis was the only piece of uh, information that was necessary to diagnose my, my uh, illness and to treat me. Now, obviously, it would be absolutely preposterous if, uh, if, if that was to happen. But in effect, that's what happened with the carbon dating of the shroud. We had the radiocarbon laboratories and the British Museum who made the announcement that the shroud is a, a medieval fake. But there was a whole load of evidence that suggested otherwise that they didn't take into any consideration at all. So I think that was one of the things which was a, is a principal concern of mine. You know The fact that they... Uh, uh, they, they abandoned the experts in the process um, but there's all sorts of other uh, other issues with the carbon dating and uh, the the report that was produced clearly so many scientists have pointed to errors and anomalies in the in the report and there's one particular figure that's published in the uh, in the shroud uh, carbon dating test report it's a Uh, A figure that's referred to as the significance level. It's a calculation that's done by the statisticians. And what this is, it's an indicator of how likely it is that you would get the spread of results observed between the three laboratories if there were errors in the measurements. Mm. Now, The carbon dating, obviously, it's not not an exact measure. Whenever you measure the age of an item using carbon dating, you're likely to get different results every time you measure it. So for instance, if you have an item which is 500 years old and you make 10 measurements, then you'd expect some of them to be slightly lower than 500 years and some to be slightly higher. Now, what we found when the shroud was dated was that the measurements that were made, or most of the measurements that were made by Oxford, were significantly older than the measurements that were made by Zurich, which in turn were older than the measurements made by Arizona. So there seemed to be a a bit of a trend there. (laughs) And this was really confirmed by this significance level value because that came out at five percent which meant there's just a five percent chance in other words a small one in 20 chance that this trend of results this distribution of results between the three laboratories there's just a five percent chance that this was due to random measurement errors now what that means let's turn it around if it's if there's just a one in 20 chance that is due to random measurement errors, then there must have been some systematic effect that was causing that distribution, that was causing the Oxford results to be older than the others. Now, one possibility there is that there was something wrong with the equipment that Oxford were using for doing the testing. So, uh, for instance, if, I, if, if, if my bathroom weighing scales were calibrated incorrectly, then every time I step on them, then I might always get a, a, a weight which is a few pounds heavier than I really am. And and that's probably, well, I hope that's what happens, really. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> that's
0: my
1: <laughs> excuse, that's for sure. <laughs> so of course, if the if the uh, Oxford lab, if, if there was something wrong with their equipment that meant that they were always giving older results, then what we would have expected to see is that when they tested the control samples, they'd also get the oldest results there as well. But they didn't. For one of the control samples, Oxford got the youngest set of results. And for another one, they got the second youngest. So if it's not the labs that have introduced this, um, if it's not the, the lab measurements that have introduced this, this uh, systematic, uh, systematic error, what else could it be? And the only plausible thing that it could be is that the samples tested had different radiocarbon content. And if that's the case, then that is evidence of contamination. And if there's contamination there, then really the test is invalid. So that's just... Well,
0: the the sample taken uh, would be incorrect. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 that the met the method or the selection of that sample right there would be incorrect and and uh, you know absolutely so
1: yeah so uh, so this is this is not um, uh, any, anything that has been hidden this was published in the test report this figure this five percent significance level figure was published in the test report in the test report but um, the interpretation that uh, I've just given was not one that was made by uh, the, uh, the laboratories and the British Museum. It's, it's something that many research scientists since then have pointed out several times, and which really does uh, undermine the conclusion that this is a piece of cloth that dates with a 95% certainty to the period 1260 to 1390 AD. And of course, there are many, many other reasons why people mm. do not trust that date.
0: Right, right. So what other uh, what other uh, methods? You mentioned uh, the, the pollen. You mentioned the uh, Ray Rogers chemical testing. Okay. And uh, of course, we have the radiocarbon, which I guess, you know, I always think about that as a nuclear thing. But it, I, as I understand it, it's more of a chemical kind of a test. What other tests, and you mentioned the coins, of course, we spoke a lot about the Justinian the second coins. Yeah. Uh, what, what, other, what other evidences uh, that uh, are there that really refute the, uh, the, the, the carbon testing that was uh, the dates that came out of the carbon 14 testing?
1: Well, the, the, uh, the methods that uh, have been uh, undertaken by Italian scientists are really quite, uh, uh, quite extraordinary. Um, of course, The reason why radiocarbon dating works is because uh, there is an isotope of carbon which decays gradually over time. And so by measuring the ratio of this carbon-14 isotope compared with the rest of the carbon and knowing how quickly it decays, then from that, we can work out exactly how old Uh, a particular artifact might be. Now, one of the things that uh, Giulio Fanti and other scientists have done is they've looked for other other things that degrade over time, other qualities that degrade over time. Now, linen, which was the fabric that was used to make the shroud, linen comes from flax and one of the main chem- chemical constituents of flax is uh, a chemical known as cellulose. And cellulose is a—it's uh, basically, it's a long chain of glucose molecules which is created by plants. And it forms this extremely long polymer. But over time, this uh, these chains of, of uh, cellulose start to break down and Uh, the breakdown over many many years of time and one of the things that these uh, scientists have done is looked at different ways in which you can make assessments of how much degradation there's been in the cellulose and uh, there are various tests that have been performed which use uh, methods such as Fourier transform, infrared spectroscopy, Raman spectroscopy, uh, X-ray, wide-angle X-ray scattering. But also some mechanical dating tests as well, where effectively what they do is they've taken individual fibers, and they've measured various different uh, mechanical properties of these fibers, such as at what point it breaks. Now, with every single one of these tests, there was a lot of due diligence done to try and establish trying to calibrate and establish that these tests were viable so they used various different samples of, of, uh, of uh, linen which came from objects of known age but spread over 3000 years and using those they were able to uh, calibrate uh, the uh, test and the test instrumentation that they used And then it's only when in every single case that they'd completed this calibration that they were then able to feel they were ready to test the shroud material or the shroud fibers. Because what we're talking about here is tiny, tiny fragments of material that that were available to to scientists. Because of course, uh, the Turing authorities we not uh, willing to let people go and take any more samples from the shroud. So there are literally just tiny samples of material that have been accumulated over the years from previous tests and which have been reused by uh, people such as Giulio Fanti and Liberato De Caro, these kind of people who have been doing these mm. tests. And um, yeah, as I mentioned briefly before, the results that have been attained by the use of, of these particular methods have been really quite uh, really quite uh, extraordinary in that they do consistently reveal that the material is much older than the carbon dating test itself. And one of the most recent tests was a wide angle x-ray scattering test that was performed by a team led by Liberato de Caro. Um, and that looked at the Uh, spectrum that was obtained by using a a technique known as wide angle x-ray scattering and depending on how old the material was the spectrum changed the the position of various different peaks and troughs in the spectrum moved or became higher and lower and there was a very very clear trend that uh, you can see and you'll be able to see this in my book if anybody was to choose to <laughs> to read it there's a very well clear... i'm going to ask you about that in a second so sure <laughs> get ready i'm very excited for you there's, there's a very clear trend that uh that uh, is is visible there um which shows that as as a an, an item ages then over time these peaks uh change in size and that the older it is the the uh the greater the difference now the um one of the things that liberato DiCaro did was he recognized that the the rate at which cellulo- cellulose appears to age is dependent on temperature and humidity so he had to look at what the average temperature would be in various different parts of the world where these ancient data artifacts that he'd been dating, where these had been kept, where they'd been been stored. And from that, he was able to uh, really produce a calculation, produce a model, which um, allowed him to to date linen. Now, One of the things which is particularly interesting is that when you look at the X ray scattering model for uh, the X ray scattering uh, spectrum for the Shroud of Turin, the sample that was taken from the Shroud of Turin, that matches almost perfectly a sample that was taken from some cloth that was found in the first in, in Masada which dates from the 1st century. It's known to date from the 1st century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And really, it's it's very difficult to argue that the Shroud and this cloth in Masada are uh, very different ages. Just the, the spectrum itself seems to indicate that they are of a similar age. Mm. So there's, there's a several of these tests five mechanical dating tests there's at least four spect- uh, three um, spectroscopic tests and one chemical dating test that ray rogers performed using mm-hmm. vinyl all of which are consistently giving uh, dates which predate significantly the radiocarbon dating test and all of yeah. these direct measurements made using fabric so I, th- I think it's uh, increasingly becoming a, um, becoming obvious that the, the 1260 to 1390 dating result that was given by the radiocarbon laboratories is a real outlier. I've got no doubt at all that they were accurate measurements of what mm-hmm. they were testing. But of course, as we've uh, since discovered, uh, there are various different plausible hypotheses as to how and what those results might have been affected by contamination and the yep. causes of that contamination. So for right. instance you've uh, I know you've already interest, interviewed Joe Marino and uh, Joe is uh, a person who initially proposed uh, uh, certainly one of the leading proponents of uh, the uh, reweave hypothesis. Um, which he and his late wife Sue Benford uh, championed back in uh, the early two thousands, and uh, and you've interviewed Bob Rooker, who I know mm-hmm. Bob is a, uh, very much a supporter of the uh, neutron absorption hypothesis, which suggests that the reason why the result was wrong is because there's been some neutron absorption by the by the cloth, which has increased the level of radiocarbon, and made it appear younger than it used to be, yeah, or yeah. know, than it really is, rather. And then- well, let me- yeah, and
0: Yeah, sorry. No, no, no. I, I know you can go on for a long time there, and because uh, there are so many interesting uh, tests and theories out there. Uh, but before we get too far, I, I did want to, uh, uh, again, mention your book, uh, The Shroud of Christ, Evidence of a 2000-Year Antiquity. Uh, so uh, tell us about that when's it going to be available and uh, I want to get my hot little hands on it and uh, (laughs) definitely learn more about what you've got in there
1: well it's um, about uh, two years ago just over two years ago um, I I, I was asked by Giulio Fanti if I would write uh, uh, a book about all the dating evidence that's been accumulated from the last 100 years of shroud research and it was uh, <clears throat> julius julius the series editor for a, a a series of books um in fact his book and uh, the other that you mentioned earlier the one by cecesabarta mm-hmm. yep it's a it's a series of books published by jenny stanford publishing yes. <laughs> yep i've got that one too <laughs> yeah well, it's a series of books on um Christian relics and phenomena. And uh, yeah, this is uh, the book on the dating evidence is the next book in the series, volume six, I think it's due to be. Um, And really what I'm doing in the book is going through all the dating evidence. So starting off with all the evidence that was already available back in 1988 before the carbon dating took place. And looking at the research that's taken place in, sorry, I'll just have a quick mm-hmm. just clear my throat. <clears> throat. Yeah, and also the other dating evidence that's that's accumulated since that test. Uh, but of course, you cannot talk about the dating evidence without looking very closely at the radiocarbon dating itself. And so uh, there's a substantial part of the book that examines the carbon dating test that looks at a lot of the issues that and the controversy that's uh, arisen uh, as a result of some of the uh, analysis that's been done since then by scientists who called out what are believed to be clear errors and uh, mistakes mm. in the process and um, Unusual interpretations, let's, let's say, of the um, of, of the of the measurements. So we look at that in a lot of detail in the book. Uh, cover that in a lot of detail, and also go into the various different um, hypotheses that explain the dating result. The contamination <laughs> hypotheses, um, mm. and there've been there've been several. Uh, um, some which have not really stood. Scient- the test of uh, scientific scrutiny, others which uh, are still um, supported by many people who do do uh, who perform research into the shroud. So we look at that in a lot of detail. And although it's a book that's um, very much about about the science that, uh, uh, that uh, of the of the dating, I've tried to write it in a way. Which uses uh, layman's terms rather than scientific terms, and and try to make uh, some fairly complex science uh, as understandable as I can to people who perhaps don't have a scientific background. So I do hope it's a book that might have appeal, an appeal not just to scientists but people with just a general interest in the in the shroud.
0: Well, and even uh, even scientists uh, from one field need to be able to understand the other field. So it is very hard to put uh, scientific information and, and what have you into a layman's into layman's terms so that the rest of us can <laughs> have a better chance of understanding it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in a compendium, it sounds like of, uh, of all the different tests and the results and some of the good ones, some of the ones that have withstood scientific scrutiny and sounds like some that may not have uh, yeah that...
1: I would try to be a little bit subject well, try to be a little bit try to be very objective about about these uh, one of the things about the shroud science group and of course you're a member as well guy mm-hmm. uh, is it's um, it, it it's a, a very very useful forum for checking out um, scientific uh, discoveries and checking out and re-evaluating previous evidence. And of course, one of, the, one of the strong points about it is that a collection of scientists, you'll always have people with very different opinions and it's very easy to get carried away with one's own personal enthusiasm mm-hmm. and one per, one's own personal belief. And every now and again, you just need to have uh, people who... Are prepared to just take a hard look at things and give it a good reality check. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. that forum, I think, has been incredibly useful because a lot of the evidence, which I discussed in the book, has been discussed in the Shroud Science group. So if there are any flaws or any uh, um, arguments against it, then you know, it has to withstand that level of scrutiny yeah. Yeah. in order to be considered
0: valid. And and that's what and, I, you know, and I agree with you. I mean, that, that that level of scrutiny and being able to also hear from the, uh, not only the authenticists, but the, the non-authenticists and, yeah. and and have them, you know, give it, a, you know, a, a very critical look at what you're trying to do, because there's no question that, you know, we're going to be a we we may try to be objective but there's always uh, some of subjectivity in in everything that we do and getting that second opinion there i think is, is critical so uh yeah well congratulations uh so when will the book be out roughly
1: well it's uh it's been through all the proof stages um i think everything is ready now apart from the printed version so uh I, I haven't yet been given a date but I'm keeping my fingers crossed that the release will coincide with Easter and certainly uh, which would be a, a real result if uh, if that was the case but yeah. uh, failing that I'm sure it won't be many months so that's for sure. Fantastic well
0: congratulations on that um yeah. I'd love to uh continue the conversation and maybe we'll do a second round uh you know after your book is actually out and people can get it and uh and then after i've had a chance to read it and and uh and you know learn a little bit more about what you've done there i'm sure it's going to be very valuable for overall for the uh the science related to the shroud but uh, i did want to uh thank you uh, so much and really appreciate your time today and and uh look forward to the book and so tell us how we can uh, get a hold of you what would be the best way and
1: well the the, the best way to get a hold of me really is through the uh British Society for the Churing Shroud newsletter website bstsnewsletter.com um, the, anyone can get a hold of me there um, fantastic and, uh, and of course if anybody wants to take out a subscription there are buttons there that you can press in order to uh, <laughs> in order to do that
0: we will definitely do that bstsnewsletter.com and uh, it's a wealth of information and you also have a uh, a really good uh, facebook page And that's uh, facebook.com slash News, And uh, you've got a ton of stuff there. And then, of course, the newsletter and and what have you. So, uh, well, Michael, thank you so much. And and for the rest of the audience, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes as well. And if you like this one, please rate it with five stars. Michael, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Guy. Thanks for the uh, for the opportunity to come on your show, and and by the way, thanks also for what you're doing to uh, promote um, an awareness of the shroud through your podcast. I think it's a tremendous job.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. I I think it really is helping on that. I and and I you know you, you you just hope that it is helping and to spread the word that the shroud is out there. It is not a fake, or at least to a ninety nine point nine percent chance and very high percentage that it is not a fake. So uh, hopefully that message is getting out there. Sure. Thank you, Michael.
1: Here's Guy. Thank you. Yep. Bye.